The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Some films are two-hour deep dives into an exploration of the human condition. Other films are two-hour setups for the immigrant song. Both of these are totally acceptable forms of cinema, and this is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are reviewing the film which ranks right now on many lists between, like, number, like, five and number one on all of the MCU movies, Taika Waititi's uh, grand explosion onto the, at least the American um, uh, movie-making scene. Uh, We have the movie that saved the Thor franchise, Thor Ragnarok. I am so excited to get here. Uh, This has been a a long time coming. Um, I was excited to sit down and watch it. This is the Thor film I've seen the most, and yet sitting down to watch it again, I was, I was... intrigued the entire time laughing the entire time enjoying it from beginning to end still the entire time this is a film that um spoiler alert for what i'm going to say at the end uh is almost perfect uh what's your experience watching thor ragnarok sir uh i do remember seeing this one in the theaters i forget who i was seeing it with uh but i yeah i absolutely loved it uh this is one also i showed it to kelly she watched it with me a few months ago and she also really enjoyed it uh yeah it's just it's it was a delight i mean i think delight is the best word i could use to describe my experience with it It it's just so much you keep justin you keep talking about how there's a certain uh part of a good superhero movie is there there needs to be a certain element of fun to it, which is the danger of when superhero movies take themselves too seriously. This is not a film that is in any danger of taking itself too seriously. Uh, and this film was a whole heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there's something that I used to really enjoy when I was a kid reading um, ancient mythology. And there was a breeziness to the myths. The myths were easy to tell. They were easy to understand. Any child could understand them. Um, mm-hmm. the, the characters were strong, um, and, and the, the hero's journeys were, were so well defined that I could pick up a book of mythology now, or I could pick it up when I was 11 and really enjoyed it. And I think that the best, you know, and, and I have said many times that I'm an X-Men guy, which is a generally brooding comic book. But if I were to be honest, my two favorite X-Men books were um, Excalibur, uh, which I'll talk about in a second, and The New Mutants, which I think may end up being the next film that we review uh, after Thor Ragnarok, which should come out in just two <laughs> or three weeks. Um, I've heard uh, I've heard many people recommend The Old Guard, too, so we should look into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the the thing about The New, the New Mutants was very angsty, had a very John Hughes feel to it. Uh, the comic did, um, and then got could get strange. Then eventually got too cool for school as Rob Liefeld took over and created Deadpool and Cable and stuff like that. But Excalibur was drawn by my favorite comic book artist, who a man named Alan Davis, um, who's done some very very famous uh, comic books. I think specifically of Uncanny X Men two thirteen, which is the the biggest Wolverine saber tooth fight you ever had. Um, he did a Wolverine graphic novel that was amazing. He did. Tra- Fantastic Four. He did a lot. He was in charge of the X-Men for a little while. Um, But him and Excalibur had this whimsy to it. It was the first time I really saw a Marvel multiverse. And it was silly. um, And it could oscillate between being silly and then being heartbreaking at the same time. 
And that mm-hmm. is something that Marvel has taken off uh, with certainly through all the films. Avengers did that. That's Joss Whedon's stock and trade. But I never felt it so captured as I did in this. I felt, you know, the four color comic come to life on the screen with equal amounts of whimsy and fun and also mythological size of a and 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 definition of a hero's journey, um, which could all at once make you totally buy the what are you, the god of hammers level of of I'm just gonna be badass, and then also every little bit of hilarious undercutting of that same thing. And they both exist and coexist in spades. Um, and this is the first film that I'd ever really seen capture that level of, of whimsy uh, that I mm-hmm. got from comics. So let me, let me bring that around to a question for you. Uh, I've said my example of that. Do you have a comic book that you can think of a comic or a manga that you read uh, growing up or as you've gotten more to comic books later in life that, that you feel sort of represents this level of both heroism and sort of silly whimsy? I mean, it's funny. The first thing that jumps to my mind is Joss Whedon's run of Astonishing X-Men um, that had more comic lines in it than I remember many X-Men titles uh, had at the time. And it also had some tremendous moments of self-sacrifice and, hero- and heroism. Uh, I don't know if anything jumps to mind of this degree of whimsy. Like, there's... Up until this point, I would think of superhero films... Like, the, the most comic I would think of a superhero film was, this is a superhero film, but it's got lots of comedy in it. Uh, this is the first time that I was thinking, no, this is a comedy about superheroes. Uh, like I would put this almost more in the comic genre. Uh, it leans so heavily into that. Uh, but I certainly was not complaining. I feel like the I, I feel like the the mold had started to be broken, and credit must be given to James Gunn's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which I'm sure we'll True. get to eventually. Um, which uh, which created sort of the psychedelic look, the use of of rock of rock music in sort of an ironic way. Um, the, the, I feel like the, the galactic craziness of the Marvel universe was certainly started there. And of course, um, immediately before this film, also Dr. Strange had a little bit of that. Um, Mm. but there is a, certainly I can see this. If you were to tell me, and I know it's not, if you were to tell me that this were directed by the same person who directed, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I would probably believe you, um, because mm-hmm. there's certainly a a a similarity between the two. But I feel like Taika Waititi was willing to take it to the next step. Have you seen his previous film uh, before this? Uh, what we do in shadows? Oh yeah, absolutely. And as soon as I as soon as I realized that he was the one who had directed that, there was a whole lot that fell into place for me. I was like, oh yeah, oh absolutely. Yeah, and and he is in that. He stars in that. And of course, he's he's Korg in this film. Um, and I mm-hmm. even have seen a little bit of the What We Do in Shadows uh, TV show. Which is also phenomenal. Pretty, pretty spectacular. Um, Taika Waititi went on after this uh, to develop the TV show and also the season finale of The Mandalorian, um, mm-hmm. which was uh, which was the best one in the in the series, I thought. Um, and he was also the voice of the of the droid of the assassin droid was also mm-hmm. the hunter IG Eleven um, was also voiced by Taika Waititi. 
So, so I know that they are involving him now in the Star Wars future, which I think is is good. And I think that Mandalorian, as his sort of uh, audition to go, hey, I can do Star Wars, and it won't be like Thor Ragnarok. It'll be fun, but I'm not going to, you know, fill it with psychedelic mm-hmm. colors. There's two different things, and I can do both. And then one, of course, yeah. must must speak about Jojo Rabbit, right? Uh, yes, which I still have not seen. Okay, well, uh, well, spoiler alert: see it um, because it's great. It's maybe top ten favorite film of last year. Um, uh, absolutely worth uh, worth seeing, both for the movie and for Taika Waititi's amazing performance as Hitler. Um, there's a great uh, th- there's a great question that was asked of him in that film, which I love, which gives you his attitude right away. Where they asked him to play Hitler, did you have to do any research to pay to play Hitler? And immediately stopped, and he said, "No, I didn't do any research at all. I just decided to to play him however I wanted, and kind of as a buffoon, because that's the thing that would have pissed Hitler off the most." <laughs> Very true. And uh, I think Mel that's Brooks, amazing. Mel Brooks was the one who said that the uh, the best way to to piss off the devil is to laugh at him. Um, uh, his next film, of course, is going to be uh, it's going to be Thor: Love and Thunder, uh, which is going to bring back a character that this film is missing, uh, which is uh, Jane Foster, which we'll talk about really briefly as we talk about this cast. Um, but uh, this is a film that came out uh, at the El Capitan Theater on October 10th, 2017. The United States uh, wide release was November 3rd, 2017, clocking it at 130 minutes, a budget of $180 million. That is a crazy That's budget. pretty small. Um, uh, well, it, it's, it's small, but, I, but it's also huge. <laughs> which is which is fun. Um and then the box office at 854 million dollars. Um which is again what a return on your investment when you make four times mm-hmm. it's an enormous hit. An incredible hit. Um uh Chris Hemsworth was going to leave in this. Chris Hemsworth was was kind of done. He was sort of sick of playing Thor. He he's he was going to come back for um Avengers uh Infinity War and Endgame, but he was he was sort of done with it. And then Taika Waititi sold him on this vision and now as you can see, you know, he's absolutely into playing Thor as long as he can keep doing it this way. So uh mm-hmm. so I mean uh, the Rotten Tomato score is amazing. Uh, the the reviews are great. The film is wide widely accepted as one of the best in Marvel Universe. Incredibly profitable. But I do have a question for you. Um, what happens in Thor Ragnarok, Sir Arthur? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so here's the plot to Thor Ragnarok. <clears throat> Two years after the Battle of Sokovia, Thor is imprisoned by the fire demon Surtur, who reveals that Thor's father Odin is no longer on Asgard. He explains that the realm will soon be destroyed during the prophesied Ragnarok, once Surtur unites his crown with the Eternal Flame that burns in Odin's vault. This is so freaking mythological, I love it. Thor frees himself, defeats Surtur, and takes his crown, believing he has prevented Ragnarok. Thor then returns to Asgard to find Heimdall gone, and his estranged brother, Loki, posing as Odin. After exposing Loki in possibly one of the arguments for the most comic scene in the film, and that is really saying something, Thor then forces him to help find their father. And with directions from Stephen Strange at the Sanctum Sanctorum in New York City, they locate Odin on a cliff in North Norway. Odin explains that he is dying. Ragnarok is imminent despite Thor's efforts to prevent it, and Odin's passing will free his firstborn child, Hela, from a prison she was sealed in long ago. Hela was the leader of Asgard's armies, conquering the Nine Realms with Odin, but Odin imprisoned her and wrote her out of history after fearing that she had become too ambitious and powerful. Odin dies as Thor and Loki look on, and Hela appears, destroying Thor's hammer Mjolnir. She pursues the two as they attempt to flee through the Bifrost Bridge, forcing them out into space. Arriving in Asgard, 
she defeats its army. She then resurrects the ancient dead who once fought with her, including her giant wolf, Fenris, and appoints the Asgardian Scourge as her executioner. Hela plans to use the Bifrost to expand Asgard's empire, but Heimdall sneaks in, takes the sword that controls the bridge, and begins hiding other Asgardians. Thor, meanwhile, crash lands on Sakaar, a garbage planet surrounded by wormholes. And I don't just mean it's a garbage planet like it's a planet that it is literally a garbage planet. <laughs> a slave trader designated Scrapper 142 subdues him with an obedience disc and sells him as a gladiator to Sakaar's ruler, the Grand Master, with whom Loki has already ingratiated himself. Thor recognizes 142 as a Valkyrie, one of a legendary force of female warriors who were killed fighting Hela eons ago. Thor is then forced to compete in the Grand, Mother's co in the Grand Master's contest of champions, facing his old friend from work, Hulk. Summoning lightning, Thor gets the upper hand, but the Grand Master sabotages the fight to ensure Hulk's victory. So still enslaved after the fight, Thor attempts to convince Hulk and 142 to help him save Asgard, but neither is willing at first. He soon manages to escape the palace and finds the Quinjet that Hulk brought to Sakaar. Hulk follows Thor to the Quinjet, where a recording of Natasha Romanoff causes him to transform back into Bruce Banner for the very first time since Sokovia. The Grand Master orders 142 and Loki to find Thor and Hulk, but the pair come to blows and Loki forces her to relive the deaths of her Valkyrie companions at the hands of Hela. Deciding to help Thor, she takes Loki captive. Unwilling to be left behind, Loki provides the group with the means to steal one of the Grand Master's ships. They then liberate the other gladiators who, incited by two aliens named Korg and Meek, stage a revolution. Loki again attempts to betray his brother, but Thor anticipates this and leaves him behind, where Korg, Meek, and the gladiators soon find him. Thor, Banner, and 142 escape through a wormhole to Asgard, where Hela's forces are attacking Heimdall and the remaining Asgardians in pursuit of the sword that controls the Bifrost. Banner transforms into Hulk again, eventually, defeating Fenris, while Thor and 142 fight Hela and her warriors. Loki and the gladiators arrive to rescue the citizens, and a repentant Scourge sacrifices himself to enable their escape. Thor, facing Hela, loses his right eye, and then has a vision of Odin that helps him realize only Ragnarok can stop her. He sends Loki to retrieve Surtur's crown, and places it in the Eternal Flame. Surtur is reborn and destroys Asgard, killing Hela and himself as the refugees flee. Aboard the Grand Master's spaceship, Thor, now King Thor, reconciles with his brother Loki and decides to take his people to Earth. But in a mid-credits scene, they are intercepted by an ominous large spacecraft, Fiend. So Thor Ragnarok has a lot of plot, and normally when I, I say that sort of si snidely, uh, when that happens with other films, where I go, oh boy, there's a lot that happens. Um, but mm -hmm. I say that in praise this time around. It manages to do a lot while never feeling like it's giving lip service to something to to help some other thing. I think that that's this one of the not, things. It does not suffer from much bloat. Yeah. And it doesn't do what you could say Iron Man 2 or Age of Ultron did, which was we have to dedicate 20% of the film to setting up a billion other things. Um, mm -hmm. And yet it sets up major things um, for the next film, including the state of Asgard, where the people are. Huge things for Endgame are set up in this film. Um, there, There's just a ton of stuff that this film manages to set up and does it so gracefully. Um, while adapting um, two major plot lines from the comics, of course, the, the concept of Ragnarok. And then there's a comic out there, a very successful comic called World War Hulk. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, which, we, oh, gosh. I Yes. If, if you don't mind me jumping in on this, just because I need to yeah, say. Please the do it, because I read tragedy. it only once in a long time ago. So please. I, like, I, oh, please my gosh. Me. The only tragedy of this whole thing is that what they did here was 
uh, my understanding is that Marvel Studios did not actually have the rights to be able to make a standalone Planet Hulk film. Because they still do not have the right to make the a comics. film with Hulk in the title. Yeah, and Planet Hulk, Planet like World War Hulk is actually sort of the finale to the whole Planet Hulk saga, and it is it is a freaking myth on its own with Hulk as the main character. Like it's it is staggeringly good, uh, and absolutely had. Planet Hulk been made into its own film it would have been magnificent uh, and so what they did here I mean so the the thing is I like honestly the I mean it was cool that they pulled in Planet Hulk elements but they did it all in very like it's almost like they they lampshaded the entire Planet Hulk storyline uh, in this uh, like Meek is like Korg for one thing is uh, is not just this silly little rock creature he becomes like Hulk's war brother and they have this incredibly deep relationship uh, Meek is this, you know, becomes this devoted follower to Hulk. Like it's these, these are incredibly well fleshed out characters in their own right. Uh, and don't get me wrong, the way that they did this to create the film that we've got, the film that we've got is a delight. It is a whimsical ride, and it taking place in a garbage planet with uh, with a gladiator gladiator arena and aliens. It's it's quite lovely. It's wonderful. Um, but I almost am left asking. Oh, I know you couldn't have done planet hulk on your own but why'd you need to why did you choose this particular storyline to try to pull into lampshade uh so to the person who doesn't know planet hulk nothing about thor ragnarok is going to seem incongruous uh to me who had read the first storyline don't get me wrong i enjoyed thor ragnarok i loved it but the whole time i was like ah this is these characters that you're making with planet hulk uh with the planet hulk characters it just it just almost makes me more sad that you couldn't do the actual thing yeah i mean if you're going to do a Hulk storyline, that certainly would be the one to do. Unfortunately, my understanding is that they are still, as of this day, not able to do a Hulk storyline if they were to so choose. Um, That Mm -hmm. they are still, uh, Universal is still tied up with those rights, where Marvel has the rights to the character, but not the right to make a movie with the Hulk in it. So, um, again, there's, it's, we could do an entire episode if either of us wanted to do the research, or if any of you guys listening want to go out and look it up. Look at how Marvel was about to collapse in upon itself in the late 80s and how it just sold off the rights to all of its characters to stay afloat. And had they not done that, there would be no Marvel. But that's why you have Spider-Man in one place and X-Men in another and Hulk in another is is mm-hmm. is because of that. And it's it is sad. Um, because that would have been an incredible um an incredible thing to see. But at least we get to see some <laughs> of it. Incredible. Ah, ha, ha. I would tell you that the selling point from the movie or from the trailer for me was the he's a friend from work, um, which made me so happy. I don't know so if this is urban myth or not, but wasn't that like some kid, like some key grips kid or something was on set and, you know, and sort of threw that line out there as a suggestion and everyone was like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think I think it was that or it was a it was like you want a contest or make a wish thing. I'm not sure, but someone it was a kid who was on there who thought that it would be funny if that was said and then that was said then that became the high point of the trailer where they immediately need like oh i know the kind of film that they're going to be making here yeah um, it, it, that one line defined the entire film so well um yeah and, and it's it's once you saw that in the trailer like oh i get it and the film delivers on everything that it promised you which is you know mm-hmm. something that i'm it's behind the, the the scenes right now um right before this podcast i am i am cutting a trailer for 
uh, for what it's now going to be called um, a Christmas cancellation. And, and in cutting that trailer, you find yourself going, do you, you want to mislead a little bit so that you don't give anyone, give things away that happened in the movie while also you want to create a trailer that sells people on the movie that makes them want to see it and also makes them feel like they get what the trailer promised them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a complicated thing to do. I'm not always that great at doing it when I cut trailers. This was the perfect buildup of of giving me everything that I wanted a trailer, and then a movie just like overflowing with everything that it's it's trying to give. So I was I it, it's mm-hmm. a it's a tone thing that I think that that really really worked. Um, let's talk really quick about. Uh, I mean, we let's go where, where the movie starts. Of course, the opening. Uh, Clancy Brown, uh, of course, Krusty uh, uh, Krab himself. Uh, voicing the the fire demon, Thor turning around. That is that is my younger kid's favorite scene in the whole movie. Is in the first two minutes of the movie where Thor oh, is hanging and just rotates around. He goes, "Hold on, hold on, I'll be back around in a second. I'm not trying to do this. Really, I'm not <laughs> like that. That that moment is so killer. That that again, it's the last thing you expect. Remember, we talked in the last one about how the people from Game of Thrones took over, and while there was some humor, like it it felt like they were trying to make this very serious thing. And I didn't feel that it worked very well as a Marvel movie. So this, as a left turn from that, um, and as he's literally making left turns, haha, get it? Um, ah. uh, he like the movie comes right out and tells you in the first thirty seconds the kind of movie that it's doing. Um, yeah. Do any any thoughts on that scene, or just how brave it is to just let the joke stretch out? Uh, you, I, I mean, honestly, at this point, I don't know if I would necessarily call that brave because um, letting a joke stretch out is kind of that has now been an established functional thing. Uh, you know, and we can thank Seth MacFarlane and Family Guy for truly locking that into the collective culture. Uh, but it is it is exactly what you said. There are within the first three minutes, you have no doubt exactly what kind of film it is going to be. There's going to be big Big flashy colors. There's going to be epic fights, and there's going to be lots of jokes. And uh, that's and there are worse things in the world. And rock music blaring in a Thor yes, movie. Yes, and rock music. Yes, that definitely yeah. defines it. it. Just like it again. You know, you're told you know in high school and college how to write a thesis paper is that in the opening paragraph you want to give little tastes of everything that's going to be in your paper from beginning to end in your opening paragraph. Mm-hmm. This is your opening paragraph. And it gives you all of it. Gives you all of it. Sets and up the remind plot. Me, is it is it the immigrant song at the beginning as well? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That now that I will say is bold to use a signature flagship song twice uh, in one film, like to, and a song that has the word Valhalla in it while he's literally yeah. it's like hanging out in hell. I mean, what we, we we all yeah we all knew that the immigrant song like as soon as we saw Thor Ragnarok with the eighties like you know with the eighties logo on it was like well obviously immigrant song needs to be in this um, but. <laughs> The fact that the I, I cut that that was the brave choice when you know jumping to the end when you know Thor realizes he's not just the god of hammers and uh, the fact that Taiko Waititi was like you know what you sure loved it when we used the immigrant song at the beginning hey rather than trying to find another song that's just going to give a subpar experience why don't we use that one again and I'm just sitting there watching and I'm like yep you know what I'm I'm fine with that give me that immigrant song one more time um. What you get right after this scene, which is, again, another highlight of the film. It's like every scene is a highlight of the film. Uh, The play Mm -hmm. about the end of Thor 2 Mm -hmm. is an astounding play um, with uh, with characters who include Sam Neill of of Jurassic Park fame as Odin. Um, with Luke Hem- Hemsworth, the brother of Chris Hemsworth, playing Thor, Matt Damon, who had previously played Loki in Dogma, playing Loki. Oh gosh, that's right. 
in in this beautifully maudlin scene about about uh about the death the quote-unquote death of loki and then like watching anthony hopkins and have so much fun with thor shows up when he just goes oh shit (laughs) it's just just so good it's so amazingly good and and i was i was so excited and surprised to see that um and the way that loki is revealed uh and i love cameos but of all the mm-hmm. people that you would get in, those specific people are even funnier. Um, yeah. Just brilliantly chosen. Uh, and forgive me for saying so, but it had a little tiny bit of a Renfair vibe to me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, next, we come up on uh, on a, an extended version of the scene that was seen at the end of the movie Doctor Strange. And I'll let you talk a little bit about uh, Thor and Loki's adventures on Earth and your thoughts there. Um, you mean just where they go to find Odin? Yes. And specifically this Doctor Strange scene, which is something I love. Uh, yeah, you know, to be honest, that, um, that was the part of, like, I remember enjoying that, but the, the things just didn't quite jump out. It's not jumping out at me the way some of the other scenes did. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to put a note here, a uh, programming note at 34 minutes. I'll cut around the awkwardness here. Sure. Uh, yeah. 35. All right. So, of course, next they go to Earth and they show up in Doctor Strange's uh, Sanctum Santorum. Uh, and in said Sanctum Santorum, Doctor Strange is called for the first time a wizard, which I love. Um, mm-hmm. And then is constantly using his little teleport loops to to make Thor run into things and bounce into things. Um, and it's like it's establishing the power of Doctor Strange, which is great, and I'm glad that they're doing. Uh, but it's also making Thor kind of a you, you've just seen him be awesome. But now he's a bull in this china shop, and you just realize that he is uh, that, that he is not equipped to handle the delicacies of that. Uh, what I mm-hmm. particularly appreciate is um, is just the little things again. The stretched out joke. At one point, he he knocks down this bunch of crystals, and he's trying to put it together. And he keeps falling. And then it's time to go. And Doctor Strange goes, "You forgot your umbrella." And he and the his his hammer is disguised as an umbrella, and he puts his hand out. And you just hear this crashing and breaking of glass and things going around <laughs> as Thor goes, sorry. <laughs> and then, and then of course, as, as Loki, who's been trapped falling for 30 minutes is about to attack uh, Dr. Strange and Dr. Strange just sends them away in a teleport loop and just goes, goes, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> He's teleported away. <laughs> it's, but it, what I love about it is it totally does make sense. Doctor Strange's job is to protect Earth from mystical threats, the greatest of mm-hmm. which would be Loki. Yeah. Because Lo- Loki has invaded the world already. Um, well, it's also great because it's... Um, I really enjoyed uh, the Doctor Strange film uh, as well. We haven't we haven't reviewed that one yet, have we? Maybe I don't we think have. so. Maybe we reviewed it when it came out. God, we've been doing this for a while. Um, but I, I loved the Doctor Strange film, and it was really great to... You know, you sort of... Because it was an origin story, you know, and the way that all origin story movies end is we, you see the hero just kind of having found themselves sort of beginning to settle into their element and, you know, they find this new status quo. Uh, what's great about this scene is now actually seeing Stephen Strange. He's been doing this for a while. He is completely comfortable in his environment. Uh, and it's sort of, it, it's like this extra little moment of victory for people who were rooting for him to see just how awesome and... Uh, uh, and competent he's become. Yeah, and I really enjoyed Doctor Strange the movie too, but there are people who did not. 
There are people who felt mm-hmm. like it didn't quite do what it was supposed to be. Doctor Strange wasn't quite what they wanted him to be. And in this movie, and especially in um, Avengers Endgame, I feel like Doctor Strange comes into his own. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I, you know, again, I feel like I, I feel like this is bringing to fruition the Doctor Strange that you wanted to see. Um, and then they make. And I'll, I'll give you a production note on this. They were supposed to go out into an alley where they were going. They were going to encounter Odin and then go out into an alley in New York where Hela appeared, destroyed the hammer, and they were going to fight there. And that was all, of course, mm-hmm. shot on green screen. And if you watch the trailer when Hela destroys Mjolnir, um, it's the, it, she's in a New York City alley. It was decided. It, it was decided that the scene would play better in Norway, um, with uh, with, with on the on the cliffs of Norway, so you could have Odin's death and the subsequent battle happen in the birthplace of the of North of Norse mythology. Oh, the, that makes that's yeah, that was definitely a right call. I would say I can kind of tell that it was a last minute decision. I I it is the only place where I feel like the effects fail me in this film. Uh, where I mm-hmm. feel like the I feel like the green screen and the compositing just doesn't work. I wonder if they they even shot on a green screen or if they shot it. You know, well they the way they shoot Marvel movies, they generally build like like a quarter of a set, like whatever's near the actors, and then it's green screen behind them, um, and mm-hmm. then they extend the set back onto the green screen. Is how they normally do it. Um, I wonder if this was shot on an alley set and then that was digitally removed later because there was just when they're looking out on the emotional moments when they're supposed to look out. um, It's the one place where the effects fail me and I I can see the seams. Um, Mm. But that being said, once I get past that, it takes me 10 or 15 seconds to get past that. Once I get past that, I appreciate the poetry of it all happening in Norway. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, after the death of Odin, you get the the arrival of Hela. Um, What is your experience and your opinion of of Kate Blanchett? Uh, Wonderful actress, Kate Blanchett. What are some... Your thoughts on I don't her think I've ever role, seen. Which, which I don't we'll think I've ever seen her do something I didn't like. Yeah, that's and we'll hit her in this role later when we go by character. But what is your uh, after this? What is your your go to Kate Blanchett role? Because I feel like this is not something I ever expected her to do. Uh, well, that's the thing is I think Kate Blanchett, to her credit, does not have a go to role. Uh, I mean, she has a go to type, which is strong regal woman. Um, but she has played that type incredibly well in uh, you know in Lord of the Rings. In uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, she's you know both of her Elizabethan films, she did tremendously in the role. So this is perfectly in keeping with that. Uh, one of the more interesting character things I've seen her done was uh, I loved her work as Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator. That was some really cool oh, character work. Yeah. Oh, she yeah. was good um, in that. She was spectacular in that. Yeah. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. The the one thing I've never seen Catherine or that I've never seen Kate Blanchett play is a weak or insecure character. And part of me would almost want to see her try. Uh, but this. This was, I mean, this was just great casting. This is a role that it certainly did not require her to stretch any, like she did not need to take one step outside of her wheelhouse for that. Yeah. Ironically and, and we'll, enough, and, and we'll talk more about it later. Yeah. Um, I, I do, I do want to say though, upon seeing her, I can't tell you how old Kate Blanchett is. Um, and I thought about this when I was watching the movie. Um, I don't know if she is 30 or 60. I have mm-hmm. no idea. And she is one of these actors. Uh, Sam Elliott is another one. Where where I feel like Sam Elliott or Wilford Brimley. Did you know that Wilford Brimley was when he did Cocoon was my age? Wow. And yet Tom Cruise is sixty. It's like Tom Cruise is sixty. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I know. Huh. Um, and Kate Blanchett is is another one of these characters where I feel like she's always been like forty three. Like in mm-hmm. Elizabeth, she was forty three. In Lord of the Rings, she 
she was 43. Yep. In the second Elizabeth, she was yep. 43. And in this, she remains 43. Um, yeah. And, and, and there's something, there's something that's so wonderful and timeless about, about actors who, who can do that. Um, because it creates, when you have a, a, a 20 year, a 25 year body of work, but you don't seem to age within that body of work. So you, you are sort of like you've managed to just do roll after roll after roll after roll in, in, in sort of the same vein. Um, mm-hmm. I think Robin Williams was very much like this too. Um, I think that, that, that it's something, it's a thing that makes you legendary as opposed to someone who has to constantly say, like, like George Clooney, who's a very fine actor, when he stopped being, you know, hot and suave, um, he had to sort of redefine himself and, and, and you have people like Brad Pitt, who I think Brad Pitt actually deserves to be in this too, who is defining himself as the older hot guy now. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think, and I think that she, as an actress, I, I like sort of across her body of work i have always enjoyed her and you're absolutely right about the about the aviator um she'll always be galadriel to me but i think this might be one of my favorite things that she's ever done i'll talk about that later um Mm. so at this point the movie sort of splits in half um Mm -hmm. uh you have the adventures of thor and loki on uh on the garbage planet and then you have the misadventures of hella on asgard um, and I want to start mm. first with my only real complaint about this movie, which is Helen's Adventures, Adventures on Asgard, which is the destruction, the sort of out of hand destruction of the Warriors Three. Um, yeah, which which I was not the okay kinda, with. They did not quite does. They did not deserve that. Not after. Yeah, they're they're such icon. I mean, first they were major parts of the first two, um, especially in the second film, and the uh, you know, and they're such crucial uh, characters in the comics. Like it was just a, it was a yeah. I, there's 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 got to be a movie trope for this. It's not of uh, where you just take where you just very offhand kill off a major you know characters that really deserved better. Yeah, I I mean I think I mean you can go. It, it almost falls into the Alien Three trope of yeah. of. But but that's but they weren't really a focus. I don't know. I feel like this is mm-hmm. I feel like this is a, a a deadly decision, and I think that it's a decision that is as bad as the complaints that we had in X Men: The Last Stand, where they were just like, "Hey, let's just kill Xavier and uh, kill Xavier and Cyclops." But even in that mm-hmm. movie, Xavier's death had weight. Cyclops's death yes. had weight, and, and you can kill a character suddenly. Joss Whedon does this incredibly well. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Star Trek: The Next Generation killed Tasha Yar. Spoiler alert! Um, yeah, with like suddenly and meaninglessly, and yet the impact of her death was felt not only in that episode yeah. but for the entire rest of the series. Like it felt um, like what do we do? Like it felt like the the script writers are sitting down. And they're like, well, shoot, what do we do with the warriors? Like they've got this whole thing set up. It's like okay, then Heimdall's going to lead this resistance. It's like oh shoot, what about the warriors three? Oh god, well we got to get them out of the picture. What? Well, let, let's just kill them off, and then they won't be a. Then we won't need to worry about what they're doing during this whole thing. Yeah, and I don't know if like it's because... it felt like they were. It, it felt like they were removed for convenience. It removed for convenience, and also killed to show how powerful Hela really is. And she broke. And, she destroyed Mjolnir. We had no yeah. doubt how powerful she was. No, you're right. No, that is that is a that is a fair thing. And then and then everything else that she does while there while she's there, with the exception of what's going on with Heimdall with, with uh, not Heimdall with Scourge. Um, it's sort of the same scene over and over again, right? It's sort of she's mm-hmm. she is powerful. People go, "You're not as powerful as you say you are." She goes, "Yes, I am." They go, "We'll stop you," and then she kills. Them. And it's sort of yeah. that over and over again, which I'm fine. It's a fine cutaway thing to do. I think in the hands of lesser actors, 
than lesser actors than Idris Elba, Kate Blanchett, and Carl Urban. This would be mm-hmm. one of those things that they're they're cutting back to this the stuff that I don't care about that much. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it which you need to do to pass the time, but it's sort of like in Jurassic Park. Every time they cut back to to Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum, I was just like, "Come on, get back to what's Ham Neil doing with the kids right now." Um, mm-hmm. and I felt very much like that in in this that like I would I I was feeling that I wanted to be with Thor. But I was just enjoying the performances so damn much that that I could go with it. And again, it, that speaks mm-hmm. to Taika Waititi's directing and the the actress he has. But I will say that that it gets sort of formulaic for a little while where they're cutting back to the villain. Um, yeah. But that's not really what this film's about, right? This film is about the Grand Master's planet um, and everything going on there. Uh, uh, which again, the, the the color palette that changes when you arrive there is oh, is so stark and surprising immediately. The minute you arrive, you're like, oh, I am somewhere else. Which is like something that I think is is marking the a, a deliberate like flip of a switch after the first two Thor films. I feel like this is the point where this stops being um, beholden to anything that they had done before. So let's Honestly, let's it's talk. Where it takes on the it's where it takes on the color palette of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, which you know, which I it absolutely should because the weirdest color palette of the Guardians of the Galaxy was the Collector, who is clearly a, re- a relative of the Grand Master. Um, mm-hmm. They're clearly the same the same species. Uh, so and and he's actually according to Wikipedia he's supposed to be the brother of the Collector. Um, and they yeah, wanted I to think see- there's like they are like I forget exactly how the the lore of this works, but there's like six like ancient. Uh, you know, ancient eternal beings. I think like the collector, the grandmaster, the champion. Um, yeah, so they are like uh they don't get into it in the movies, but in the comics, like these are the elders know, ancient, of the universe. Ancient beings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and on this planet we're introduced to to essentially a warrior, a warrior class is sort of the the, the planet is garbage garbage, but everyone's out there sort of enjoying their fast food and watching their wrestling. But it's it's you know, it's to the death. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what blood and circuses is really what you're getting here. And, um, and you're introduced to it through a haunted mansion style ride that Thor rides on, um, while it's playing, uh, while it's playing, uh, the world of sweet imagination from, uh, from Willy Wonka. Um, yeah, is a, is immediately just such a such a sidestep. You're like, oh, the movie the movie has changed, and it sort of sits mm-hmm. there um, and lets you revel in the craziness until you finally get Thor's haircut, Stan Lee's cameo, Thor's out there, and who should appear but our incredible? And then of course the Hulk uh, bursts through. Is this mm-hmm. o- okay with you? If you're not going to get your World War Hulk film and your Planet Hulk film is this is this your is this at least scratching that itch for you are you are you excited to see hulk in a thor film now getting the the second the second largest role ah uh, i mean you know it's like i've never been a huge uh a huge fan of hulk so you know when i found out in the trailer that oh it's gonna feature hulk oh well okay um you know uh, captain america winter soldier featured uh black widow a lot like it's not uncommon for these films that have one superhero to pull another avenger in as the sidekick um so i think that worked i mean i think hulk certainly was the right choice if you're going to be in that that big and bold a uh, like an alien landscape. Uh, you also needed somebody whose power level was able to play on the same level as Thor. Uh, you know, bless 
Hawkeye and Black Widow and even good old Cap, but they would not have they would not have fared well on an alien planet where you know everyone's power level is exponentially higher than your average human. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair, and I think that again when we're talking color palette, the fact that you have a big giant green character just adds True. to the the zaniness um, of the yeah. film, which I think is you know embracing that is is good. I particularly enjoy in during the battle Loki's reaction for, to Hulk being there. His unco- his, his I need to get out of here. Oh. Everything about that. <laughs> and then when then when Hulk like slams Thor and he's like, "That's what it feels like." It's just- yeah, <laughs> there's that combination of glee that it's not happening to him, but also he cannot shake the memory of that awful, awful experience. Um, and the battle's great. The gra- battle's super fun. It's fun to watch the two of them fight because they've always been. I, Hulk's random punch of Thor in the Avengers is one of my favorite laughs in the in the whole film. Um, mm-hmm. So seeing seeing all of that happen here, but I feel like the film really takes off when you get them after the fight and you get to meet this new Hulk who is basically like a toddler and 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 able to sit down and and chat with Thor. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts mm-hmm. about this about this particular smoldering fire relationship that we're given? The uh, I I like it when I think you're right about Hulk is that this is the first film that actually develops Hulk as his own character separate from Banner, um, which really, especially in the more recent iterations of the character in the comics, is a thing. You get this sense that it, it Hulk is not Banner's, uh, it's not so much that Hulk is Banner's, uh, you know, id let loose. Uh, it's not Banner, it, it's, it is not a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Hulk really is this completely separate character, um, this separate alter ego. And getting to, getting to, to, to see that, and also, um, um, it's moments of vulnerability, like the absolute for me. I think that one of the most touching moments in the film was, uh, you know, Hulk on the Quinjet, and you know him, you know, watching Natasha's face. Like uh, you see a vulnerability to Hulk, not a physical vulnerability, obviously, but you do get there is an emotional sadness, which very much goes with the toddler aspect. Actually, I think one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of the Hulk is he's not a raging monster; he is a four-year-old who has the same wants. Um, and the same fears as a four-year-old, but literal, but limitless strength. The Hulk is always acting upon the fears that a four-year-old has, but is able to do so in, you know, in these incredibly strong ways. Yeah, and I think that that is immediately makes him. You get that he's childlike, and I think that makes him um, vulnerable. And you're now rooting for him. Um, it's mm-hmm. interesting that when we talk about their relationship. Um, I realize, and this is on purpose. If you listen, read the production notes on the film, uh, it is they they said the two two of the films that they were inspired by in this film were Big Trouble in Little China and Forty Eight Hours. Ooh, um, huh. And I can see both of those films in this in this movie, along with uh, Planes, mm-hmm. Trains, and Automobiles, was also a movie that they really thought about a lot in this film. And it made me realize that this is, at first it's easy to go, oh, this is a buddy comedy. This is like multiple buddy comedies with Thor and a buddy through yeah. the film. It's like because, three separate buddy comedies. Which is, yeah, which is, which is, which of course would be Valkyrie, Hulk, and uh, Valkyrie, Hulk, and um, and Loki. But also you throw Doctor Strange in the mix of it too. It also has that, you know, they're antagonizing each other. But in a friendly way, they these are guys who would punch each other in the face, but then go out for a beer afterward. You just get that sense with mm-hmm. every character yeah. in the film. 
Um, and I think showing that Thor manages to be not only the hero of his own film, but also a, a perfect foil for almost anybody you give him mm-hmm. is um, is a wonderful exploration of, a, of the character that, that frankly, you know, excluding like Hawkeye and Black Widow in the first films, frankly, was the one that didn't quite work in the first phase of Marvel. Now you've created a character that can perfectly interact with almost anyone in Marvel is not only yeah. a, a testament to the character, but also to to what Chris Helmsworth is, is bringing to this. Um, but yes, it does become the Thor Hulk buddy comedy until it doesn't. And it then be, goes back to be the Thor Loki buddy co- comedy. And then mm-hmm. at the end, of course, you get the big destru- destruction. I want to talk about that. Um, you know, and we could talk forever about the battles and stuff. But but before we get to the end of part one of this podcast, um, I would love to speak to the other bold decision that they make in this, which is destroy Asgard and put everyone on a ship. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's a when you do this wrong, it's the last Jedi. God help me for saying so. Please don't hate me for, for saying this. But I and I like the last Jedi, but I will say. Here's an interesting thing. I have not rewatched The Last Jedi since Rise of Skywalker came out. I have rewatched The Force Awakens and I have rewatched The Rise of Skywalker, but I have not rewatched The Last Jedi. And it's not that I hate it because I I think it's a beautiful film, it's wonderfully acted, I could defend it till I'm blue in the face. But the fact is, is the what Ryan Johnson did in The Last Jedi was that he took out all the toys and he didn't put them back away again. And a lot of criticism can be lobbied at the decision of The Last Jedi to completely wipe out the resistance and then go, okay, next filmmaker, have fun um, to make your film as compelling and jaw-dropping as you can. And in doing so, n- not allowing the next filmmaker to have the same opportunity is, some, is, is a criticism I think The Last Jedi deserves. It's interesting because this film skirts very close to that for me with the destruction of Asgard because you just can't have another Thor like it's you've destroyed Asgard. It's sort of I and I and I lobbied some of this criticism at Avengers Endgame because the five years later thing makes it hard to pick up the rest of the Marvel universe. And and so I what what are your thoughts on 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 this particular choice and this kind of choice to go I when you're in? I think that's a I I think yeah. that's an an interesting observation uh, that that's. It's a, a lucid, well thought out point, and I'm going to completely disagree with you. Um, okay. Yeah, not e- and not even the I'm not even going to rehash our old debate about Last Jedi. My thoughts on that are well known to anyone who's listened to this podcast, and we yeah, don't need to go mind. down that road again. Um, but the thing is, you call it uh, um, you call it uh, taking the toys out and not putting them back in. I, there's a certain element to that. Uh, but what another, there's another way of calling that, and that is return to status quo. And the thing is, um, status quo, a relentless return to status quo works really well for, I don't know, you know, Saturday morning cartoons from the 80s, where, hey, there's a new monster of the week, and we beat it, and now everything is fine again. Uh, I recently been, I reread the entirety of The Dresden Files, uh, which is a modern supernatural uh, wizard and Chicago uh, series, really, really good series of novels. Uh, they just released the Jim Butcher, the author, released the most recent one a couple months ago. So I went back and reread, you know, the full fifteen of them. And I was trying to, f- 
figure out why it is that I enjoyed these so much. Because the the writing of them is, you know, it's fine. The characters are really enjoyable. Uh, the world is good, but n- no more so than uh, Anita Blake or Kim Harrison or like a lot of other magic in modern times, uh, you know, serial novels. But one thing that uh, the Dresden Files do that I realized is that uh, Harry Dresden, the main character, and the circumstances that he is in are never the same at the beginning of a book and at the end of the book. Um, and yes, every book is pretty much a monster of the week, but they, but even though there's this monster of the week element to it, there is still this continual sense of growth and things changing. Um, the fact is we have had three films worth of Asgard, uh, and Asgard is awesome. Um, you know, it's this cool realm and everything like that, And but having, watching our Marvel superheroes in Asgard is kind of done. Like, there's, what could you show of Asgard that hasn't been shown in the previous three films? Like, now you could go back and if you wanted to do a movie that focused just on the gods, like, you know, do an old Odin prequel or something like that, then yes, then you've got something more you can do to Asgard. But to take the same, you've basically got a choice. You can either change the environment or you can change the characters. You're not going to change the characters. That's what we showed up for. Uh, So now I think it genuinely is interesting to see, okay, you've got these Asgardians. We have seen what they are like in their home, in their place of power. We've seen it a lot. The next step is to say, okay, what are they like when they're removed from it? Um, I think it was, I mean, I agree with you. It's, it was absolutely a bold choice. Um, but, uh, you know, and there might be some people who are who might bemoan the loss of it. But I think from a film perspective, it absolutely needed to happen. Uh, because even the people who think, oh, but now we're not going to see Asgard again. It's if they'd had to see one more film of just Asgard, uh, they might have ended up thinking, oh, without they might have ended up being bored without even realizing why. No, that's fair. I would have loved to see more Marvel characters come to Asgard, which is something the comic books did a lot. Uh, and and I and I get it. Look, the, the idea is that they may only do one more Thor movie ever, and certainly the the Avengers movies are not necessarily going to be taking place in Asgard. Nor do I know that I want them to. So mm-hmm. I think that is why I think that because there isn't a further part that is dependent on the existence of Asgard, I think I'm I am okay with it in a way that I wasn't okay with Last Jedi. Um, but it is it is the boldest thing that you could do. It makes me a little sad. I do get a little sad, and the Warriors Three is kind of part of this. When I'm like, gosh. Asgard really would have been better off if not for Thor. Like Thor's is is ultimately responsible for quite a lot of death and destruction when when all is said and done. Um, and well, how do you how do you figure? Well, it's you know the the death of Loki, the the death of Odin kind of came about because of what Thor Thor's you know situation with Loki and 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 him being him him being fooled and and their arguments you know distracted from from them preparing for hella and it's it just it's if i think of asgard as a real place there's just this part of me that just goes god have these people been through enough like and and i guess i could think that about new york city every marvel movie too where it's just like hey let's just go fight in new york for a little bit um mm-hmm. but it's you know it, it just i don't know it, it's it was a little bit it's a little bit of a downer but the question is 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 what is the responsibility of the filmmaker to me as the viewer 
And I think that, you know, I think that the weight of the responsibility and keep in mind, they knew they were making a great film, but they didn't know they were making one of the greatest Marvel films that would then get rewatched over and over again. You know, their responsibility is to affect me on my first and maybe the thought of my second or third viewing. I'm now in my sixth mm-hmm. so, and I have a podcast so I can contemplate how I would prefer them not do that. But, you know, first viewing and even second viewing, you know, I'm gripping my my armrests. And I think that the ultimate responsibility mm-hmm. of the filmmaker is to play to that first and second viewing. And hopefully people like it as opposed to trying to play to your 15th viewing down the line. So I think that that's, you know, I, I, I don't even want to say I want to give it a pass. I think it's actually a good, a good choice. It's just, it's bold to the point where it gives me pause, which it should, I think. Um, but the question now remains, what is the big point of Thor and what do we think about the actors? And that is something that we are going to hit in the next episode. But before we go, because um, we're a superhero podcast and we're talking about Marvel movies and a uh, bit of shocking news. Uh, last night, recording this on August 29th, um, last night, right after I finished watching uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I love, um, I was about to go post on it on Facebook. And I look on Facebook and I see a posting saying Chadwick Boseman dead at 42. And what Chadwick, wait, is that is that T'Challa? Is that Black Panther? And as you start looking through, yeah, um, he had colon cancer, which he thought he fought for uh, for four years um, while he was making films. So if we were to do the math, Chadwick Boseman uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2016 while filming or directly after filming Black Panther. And then he did Black Panther and all of the uh, and all of the stuff that went along with it and didn't really it wasn't until like very recently now that that people realized that that the public realized this guy was kind of sick. People were actually trolling him on Twitter because pictures came out where he looked super skinny and people were like, hey, what's your problem, dude? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, and it turns out that he was out there. um, There are pictures of him from like 2017, 2018, where he's going to like cancer hospitals and he's speaking up for kids with cancer and he's doing all these things, knowing that he's fighting this horrible disease, which eventually took his life. Um, and and I was stunned at the strength of character and positivity that I heard from him. And I'm going to give you a chance to to give your thoughts as well. But as, as you collect those, um, Josh Gad uh, um, from a number of movies and, and of course from Frozen posted the final tweet or not the final tweet the final text he got from uh from Chadwick Boseman and he said that that essentially it, the the tweet starts out uh with Chadwick Boseman complaining about sort of the weather and how it had been raining and stuff like that I'm just going to read this. Uh, He says, Chadwick Boseman uh, texting to Josh Gad. He writes, if you're in Los Angeles, you woke up this morning to a rare and peaceful sound of steady precipitation. And if you're like me, maybe you looked at the week's forecast and found that it's supposed to rain for three straight days, not without breaks of sunlight or reprieves of moist gloom. But yeah, it's going to be coming down like cats and dogs. Great. We're stuck inside these damn quarantines because of COVID. And now we can't even get no sun in Cali. Come on now. But now that the rain has stopped and today's storm has cleared, I urge you to go outside and take a deep breath. Notice how fresh the air is right now after our skies have had a three-week break from the usual relentless barge of fumes from bumper to bumper, LA commuters, and now today's rain has given the City of Angels a long overdue and much-needed shower. Inhale and exhale this moment and thank God for the unique beauties and wonders of the day. We should take advantage of every moment we can to enjoy the simplicity of God's creation, whether it be clear skies and sun or clouded over with gloom. And hey, if the air is, is this clear right now and it does rain tomorrow, I'm it might even put jars out and bins out and catch the rain throw that in the water filter and i have 
water more alkanin than any bottled brand out there. And that was how he dealt with the storms that his life felt. And it just really hit me, the character of this gentleman. I want to talk a little more about it, but I want to give you- That's you know, lovely. Your, give you your, your your chance to to opine on the life, death, and or work of, of one Chadwick Boseman. Well, unfortunately, I don't have much to say. The You're the, like, you know, we've, uh, in terms of how we both relate to films, is you're the one who's much more familiar of what actually goes on in the lives of the actors and things like that. Uh, the only thing I can say is I've enjoyed his work in, uh, in everything that he did. Uh, he was a magnificent Jackie Robinson in 40 uh, he, you know, was a phenomenal choice for Black Panther, um, and that's a character that's going to resonate for you know decades and generations to come. Yeah. Um, and from what little I knew about him as an actor, or like just as a person, uh, he seemed like a very upstanding individual. Um, unfortunately, without knowing more, I don't think I don't think I'm the one who could write a fitting eulogy here. Well, and 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 we'd be foolish to try um, because ultimately, you know, he is a parenthetical. To- to our story. Um, but I mean, I, it, I, I hope it's okay for me to to, to call this out. Um, but communities of color have really been taking a hit uh, lately. Um, where it has not been, uh, never, never been easy, but harder than ever to see some things uh, these days. And I remember when Black Panther came out, I took my oldest son to see it. And this was sort of, it was pre, it was not pre Black Lives Matter, but it's it's sort of pre me sort of investing and reading up on the movement, the importance of it. And I had done what so many people who are, you know, who are you know, white like myself, um, did with the best of intentions up to this point, which was, uh, which you know, in the '90s, it was a, don't see race, don't look at race, don't think about race. You know, you think about people, people you don't think about race, um, which is super easy for you to do when you are the overwhelming dominant race, especially in media. Um, but I started to become aware of it right around the the the, the dual punch of Wonder Woman and, and Black Panther where I started thinking about people who had always wanted to see themselves represented in, in these these heroic roles and had not been given the opportunity to do so. So I took my son to go see Black Panther and I explained to him the importance of it. And as I watched black fathers and little black kids going in, packing a theater, which, which frankly, I always imagined the superhero genre to be, well, it's sort of a white genre, isn't it? Um, and that was the thought, that was Hollywood's thought about the genre for so long. And as I walked into this theater, which was 75% black, people in costumes, t-shirts, and also like Captain America t-shirts and, you know, people of color embracing Marvel in general, where I realized, oh, like, like people have been waiting for this. And I explained to my son, I said, you know, we have a world where we've seen 50 comic book movies about, about white heroes. And yes, you know, yes, there was Steel, there was Blade and stuff, but this is, this is the MCU. This is the big time. This is the majors. And and this is the focus of Marvel for right now as it's releasing this film, um, which led to the first superhero film to be nominated for an Oscar. Um, and and explaining to my son the importance of of that representation, um, especially the after the way that you had some really unfortunate choices made in the 80s and 90s about people of color in films. And knowing that and remembering that day where I could celebrate in a room that was not non-racial, but that was celebrated for its blackness, which is a world that one, I thought that they were excluded from because of lack of interest. And I thought that I was excluded from their world because of like our Venn diagrams did not intersect at all. And suddenly championing a movie that is that is not just a black character, but it's African with a black director 
and 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 the messages that it had and the, and, and the message that it that it sent with my son and able to explain to him for the first time celebrating black culture um and it was the beginning of an eye opening for me and i know how important it was to 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 my black friends um i was really kind of hurting for them uh when i heard this news this morning because you know as as there are riots in the streets and anger over the things that are happening in wisconsin and all over the world um this is just like like another 2020 slap to the face that must hurt um so for those listening uh you know we 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 feel you man and we uh we are are crying with you so uh yeah i can't eulogize the man because i don't have the the space to but i want to acknowledge his importance to so many and um and sort of give him and them this moment so so that's it uh for totally super this week next week uh we will return to thor ragnarok as we discuss the characters and the uh the um the question of what do we do uh when we feel like something needs to pivot and is thor ragnarok's approach to it unprecedented or can we find other precedents throughout the world but uh for now my name is justin and my name is arthur and hey there true believers stay super now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 